how to make spiritual topics and how do I practice. When you create a spiritual practice, I suggested this seven, and I give a variety of reasons why. And uh, before this seven, I also suggested to whom, the subject to whom you will be contemplating this practice. And I suggest it doesn't matter. Okay, let, I learned this and I'll be back, okay? So this particular word, and as I pronounce something completely different. Because you have to forgive me because I never went to Western school, never learned English. So whatever I speak, it is just a street language. And, um, and a lot of them I have to credit to the days of our life. So <laughs> when I first came here, I have nothing to do. I've been watching the days of our life. So that helped me a lot. So, so that's why maybe the, maybe the days of our life does not contemplate. <laughs> Just let me see. The subject or object to whom Whatever you do is entirely the individual choice, whether you picture a, a Buddha or whether you picture a Jesus or whether you picture whoever, whatever, whatever, that's absolutely fine as long as the subject to whom you're doing. This is basically a very good spiritual business, a very good worshiping business. Very good offering business, very good purification business. So as long as the person you're dealing with it, as long as it's not a just a spirit of um, some ghost, you know, become, you know, there are a lot of those things. Uh, yeah, that's right. I did talk about the ghost story. I remember now. So that's good enough. So that is to whom you do this. And the first is, uh, I bow down in body, speech, and mind. And it's not a question of bowing down. It's a question of admiring the quality of that person, or from the Buddhist point of view, persons. And uh, admiring, not only admiring their quality, but also showing interest that you would like to develop the same quality. So for Buddha, I mean, it's different from the Christian point of view. And I say, as I said earlier, I don't know anything about it. Better not speak much about it. But as far as Buddha is concerned, Buddha is concerned, and the Buddhism is concerned. So when you look at the Buddha, we look at the Buddha as a Buddhist. When you look at the Buddha, we look at the Buddha as not only a role model, not only a, a, some kind of a supreme being, but also a role model. Not only as a role model, but also, you know, some kind of a guiding person to guide us on our spiritual path. Not only to guide us to the spiritual path, it's also an example of what can we be. So it's that slightly different than the way the Western tradition look at it. Western tradition normally probably is the subject of worship, prayer. But in the Buddhist point of view, for Buddha, it is a it is big difference. So not only a role model, but as an example of what we can be. So ideal thing to be at the ultimate goal of spiritual development. That's what we look at the Buddha as a Buddhist. And I'm not saying everybody should do that. I'm simply saying as a Buddhist, that's what we do. So here, when I say I bow down by body, speech, and mind, is I'm looking at this Buddha and of the historical Buddha, of the historical Buddha, and look at his quality, quality of mind, quality of knowledge, quality of compassion, quality of love, and I admire it and express, I like to be just like you. And uh, that is the first, actually, the first thing to contemplate, actually, spiritual practice for me. That's, that's for me.
and I'll share what I do, and then you do whatever you want to do. In if you are useful in this, and I take it, that's fine. If you think, well, that's not going to go very well with my tradition, you don't have to pick up that. There are a lot of other things to pick up. So we press and I signal that I like you, I admire your quality. Admiration is something when I admire, that's what I like to be. And if you don't like it, you don't want to be. And when you like it, and they say, yeah, I don't mind having that. And I like to have it. I love to have it. I must have it. I must be that. That is how you build up. Well, that is from the Buddhist point of view, that's what I do for Buddha. I just simply don't bow down, just say of bowing down. I just don't bow down because sake of respect. Yes, respect is fine. Respect is respect. It ends there. I don't put full stop there. I do respect, I admire, I seek the quality. That's my role model. That's what I like to get it. That's what I want it to be. So that's how I contemplate. That's how I build up my spiritual practice. So I have a goal and I have a purpose. And I put my energy towards to that direction, so that my energy is not scattered all over the place. It is sort of focused and put forward. So the second one, I offer the best I have to give, both the real and the imagined. But you know, offering does not really have to be taking out of your wallet and giving cash or check. That's very good. Wonderful. But that doesn't limit to that. If we have to limit our, of our generosity to only the checks and cash, what we have, we have very pathetic situation. You know, even we are as rich as George Soros or the Bill Gates is, even then we won't have enough to do anything. So the generosity of our thing is, the generosity is a mind, you know. It's also physical, but mind. More mind. So the mind of giving, mind of sharing, mind of offering. And that's why this world says, that's what I have to give, both real and the imagined. And the more we do by imagining. Imagining is not just simply imagining. The imagining tied to be, you know, imagining in sort of imagery. The imagery can become reality. Even the scientist today is proving that whatever you have imagined and that somehow becomes reality. We know that, right? So we spent a weekend with the Dalai Lama up in this uh, MIT. The scientists tried to, to say this, this is now is proving, saying how it's going to, it's controversial, but still, that is how they're proving now. So that's, that's what it is. So, so just don't limit what we can give. Whatever we can give that, it should be multiplied. The offering will be filled with all the ground, subject to whom you offer is filled with spaces. So, unlimited, sort of really huge offering, pure, quality pure, causes pure, to whom you give is pure, what you give is pure, pure because we have no attachment, no, we don't have any hope of return, we don't have any one of those. That is one way of looking at the pure. That's not the deepest Buddhist way of looking pure. Buddhist way of looking pure is different than that. Because Buddhist way of looking pure is something else. I won't even touch it here because it's more complicated. But it's there. Keep it in your mind sometimes. You poke and you will know how really make it pure. So then the next will be purification. 
I regret and purify all transgressions. That is a symbol. When, when you look at it, it is just a symbol statement. Just a symbol statement. I regret and purify all transgressions. But if you think this is huge, it has a huge dimension. Dimension. It is huge dimension. It is huge. Number one, the purification itself is a, a fantastic thing. But the question remains, can you purify? Anything we did wrong. That is a big question. Big question. Can we purify? My answer to that is yes, we can purify. No matter how heavy the negativities might be. How horrifying it might be. But we can purify. It's not that. When I say we can purify, it's not that someone kills somebody and when they try to purify, bring that person back. We know we can't do that. That's not the point. Point here is will that person be ever marked as blacklisted spiritually? Let's say that. Nobody uses that terminology in the spiritual field. Political field, they always use that blacklisted, right? So, will they blacklist that person forever? That's the question. And no, you don't. Why not? Because they're all impermanent. They change. Everything is impermanent, it's changing. There is nothing permanent, no matter whatever it is. We did something wrong, and whatever we, not something big, small, or huge, whatever we did wrong, we can change that. Because the changing is our nature. We are not a permanent. There is no doubt. No one thinks we are permanent. We all know. We all know we were a little cute, little nice baby a while ago. Where everybody loves. We are not right from the beginning terrible, sad, ugly looking where everybody hates. We are not that. You know it. We all know that. We change. We're young. We become youthful. We become old. We'll die. We change. Everything is change. Our consciousness change. Our personality change. We change. Our deeds change. Everything changed. So wrongdoings also changeable. There is nothing called permanent solid. Nothing. This is one of the Buddha's spiritual experience. As long as you have created, by is as a natural, it is impermanent. We don't think about it. If you think it, look at anywhere, point it out to me, any single item that is permanent. You can never do it. Even the permanent monuments are impermanent. You have seen that. You know, I have seen people repairing Statue of Liberty. Statue of Liberty also needs repairing. So there is a nothing is a permanent. 
So our deeds are good and bad, both are impermanent. Bad deeds are impermanent. So therefore it is changeable. So we have opportunity to be able to change. We have opportunity to purify. It is known in our culture we seek forgiveness. And some people will not give it. <laughs> you come and seek forgiveness, they say, I refuse to forgive you. Doesn't matter. Honestly, as long as you have the mind of a pure mind of seeking forgiveness, and you ask the person whether the person gives or not, that's not at the discretion of that person. Philosophically speaking, person have right to refuse. That is his or her right. But the refuse does not affect the person who is purifying. Because from the purifying person's point of view, purely, sincerely seek the forgiveness. Even our culture is concerned. I'm talking about from the Buddhist point of view. A Buddhist, you know, is very funny in that way. They don't go and seek forgiveness from anybody. They don't. Even Buddha doesn't recommend it. So we don't, in the Buddhist tradition, we don't have those little boxes where somebody sits on the other side and 007 sits the other side. We don't have that. 007 doesn't sit the other side, you know. But it doesn't mean Buddhism is free of corruption. Believe me, it has equally that much corruption as much as you see in the Christian churches. So you see in the Buddhist temples, you do have it, to be honest. It's there. It's not only in the Western churches have a problem. The Eastern temples will have a much more problem than that, equally. But the point is, the purification does not depend on the other person. Yes, we do have to compensate something. Compensate. Whatever you hurt, you have to compensate. Whatever you do is fine. Give money, do anything, whatever. Give your life, save your life. Tell truth once, for God's sake. <laughs> or for your own sake. So all this, yes, compensation is required. However, the compensation does not require to be accepted by the subject to whom you have heard. Because you are purifying, they are not purifying. You understand what I'm talking about? So the purification is something extremely important. Important. So we can purify in the presence of God. We can purify in the presence of the Buddha. We can purify in the presence of the people. We can purify by yourself as well. Certain specific purifications may require specific way and systems. But in general, our requirement for this is a strong regret. If we don't have the regret, there is no reason why we have to purify. I'm proud of what I did it, so why should I purify? Well, I'm not so proud about it, but I don't regret what I did it, so why should I worry about it? But if I realize I did something wrong, if I realize, if I acknowledge I did something which I should not have been done, I hurt somebody, I hurt people. You know, good and bad, negative and positive, it's extremely difficult to make a distinction. Really. Who can say it is good and who can say it is not good? Only those who know God can say. 
Buddha can say, people can say, public can say that. I can say, you can say, because our knowledge is limited. So, where do I judge? How do I make a distinction, what I did right or wrong? I have a simple way of doing it. That is, did I hurt anybody? Did I hurt myself? Did I hurt you? If I have hurt you, I was wrong. Even I have hurt myself, I'm wrong. I may have a right to hurt me, but that doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. It's the wrong thing to do. But I have no right to kill myself. A lot of people think that. It's a huge mistake. Particularly some people think, you know, I brought you in the world, I have a right to take you out. Forget it. No one really does. Some people think that way. Since I brought you in, I have a right to take you out. No, you don't. You may do it, but you don't have a right to do it. Or it's, not, it's definitely not the right thing to do. So you have a negativity. So all the negativities have a negative consequences. And that's why you need to purify. When you purify, it neutralizes that karma. So therefore you don't get the consequences. This is how it, what that purification means. You neutralize the karma. It doesn't give you a positive or negative consequences. It does not. And that's why purification is become so one of the most important way to establish spiritual topics. Very important. Do it every day. Because we create negativities with or without knowledge, with or without conscience, day and night. Even when you are asleep, we do it. We dream of killing our enemy. Don't we? We do. People do. And that also has a negativity, even though it's absolutely unconscious. Not like actually killing. When you literally actually killed, it is a big deal. Even in dream you kill your enemy, it's not that big deal, but it's a negativity. So that's what I say. We create negativity with or without consciousness so many times. So, so many purification is nothing wrong and it's great. It is icing on cake. The real question is, wrongdoings can be correct. That is the most important question you have to contemplate. You have to think. You have to analyze. You have to meditate. You have to know by yourself whether you can do that or not. Of course, in our culture, we have something terrible thing called guilt. So we have done it and been helpless, hopeless, and useless, and until I paid for it. To a certain extent, it may be halfway true. But on the other hand, don't ever forget there is something called purification. Don't let it hang on your head. Don't let it torture you. We are all human beings, by God's sake. Great human beings, with a great mind, 
with all kinds of spiritual things available. The great traditions, the alternatives, all of them available for us. So we just don't have to be torture ourselves under the guilt. So this third thing, regret and purify all transgressions are one of the most important key out of this uh, creating a spiritual topics. If we don't have to worry about the spiritual thing, we don't have to worry about the purifying at all. We don't have to worry about the, even wrongdoings and guilt feelings. We don't have to. We do all this because of a spiritual reason. And as long, if, if there's no spiritual reason, as long as the police doesn't catch you, and you're okay. Am I right or wrong? So, but people feel not okay because you have the basic sense of spiritual responsibility. And that's why people feel it's not right. But at the same time, you don't have the information that you can change that. The change doesn't mean if you have killed somebody, you bring them back in life. You can't do that. It is beyond our, our hands. It is only a creator can do. Nobody else can do it. But from our point of view, we can change what we did wrong. We can purify it. We can regret. Don't buy guilt. Don't ever. I don't buy guilt trip. When people try to put me on guilt trip, I run away. I, I won't buy it. Honestly, I want I'll run away 500 miles. Won't even look it back. People do that. People are fond of it. Sometimes putting a guilt trip on somebody. I think last Tuesday I said, you can't take a pressure. People give you pressure. One of the pressure is by giving the guilt trip on you. I have somebody who tells me, if you don't do this, I'm not do my practice. I said, fine, absolutely fine, it's your choice. You know, whether you do your spiritual practice or not, what does that make different to me? So it's your choice. Do yourself. Whatever you want to do or you don't want to do it, it's your choice. Absolutely it's your choice. I'll be happy if you do it. I'll be unhappy if you don't do it, but you can't use that as a guilt thing to put it on, spin on me. Now I'll run away 500 miles. <laughs> so because that's your responsibility, it's individual responsibility, you know? So do not submit yourself to any guilt trip. But even you did the wrong thing, fine, you have to, you can purify. Just not that end here. So this is one of the most important thing in the spiritual field. From all the angles that I look in, even in Judeo-Christian tradition, the purification is accepted. They may not accept the way I said it, but they do accept the forgiveness, which is really indication of a purification. That is the one thing. And then the, from the, this is a Buddhist tradition. Somehow Buddha says, if you rejoice, you create a tremendous amount of virtue. Rejoice, something what you do, did by yourself or somebody else is doing it. Rejoice. That is something actually a great. We just sit here and keep on rejoicing what the Mother Teresa has done. 
we just sit here and rejoice what Dr. Martin Luther King has done. We just sit here and rejoice the Mahatma Gandhi has done. We just sit here and rejoice what Dalai Lama is doing. So, you know, let them work. We'll enjoy. And we get equally, not equally, but very good benefit. So I call this a great business, great investment um, without risk. There's no risk involved. It's good investment of a few minutes of our thoughts. Looking at those people's work, appreciating them, and rejoicing them. This is another tool, spiritual tool. What is rejoice Buddha? Rejoice Jesus. Oh my God, we got a we got a huge thing to do here, you know? We don't have to do anything, be a nice couch potato, like me. And I keep on rejoicing in everybody's wonderful deeds. And we don't. We have a jealousy pops up all the time in our mind. When we wanted to rejoice, our jealousy will pop up, saying, bah, 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 bah. Yes, 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 but. You know, it's all this big, big but. But, and that's our jealousy, negative emotion. Negative emotion does his or her job. Negative emotions does their own job. So that is to take yourself away from rejoicing. The jealousy will pop up. That is how negative emotions work. How the positive emotions work is we appreciate what they have done. Honestly speaking, whether they have done right or wrong, it doesn't matter. It's been helpful to a lot of people, and we rejoice, we get benefit. Whether their motivation is right or wrong, is none of our business. Because we all want the benefit. We do not want disadvantage. We rejoice their good work. Well, if you rejoice George Bush today, we get all this negative of killing, dying our own people in Iraq, all these young people. We do get that negativity as well. So remember that. It's a big risky. We do have that as well. So to whom you rejoice? It's almost the same as to whom you take refuge. We rejoice Gandhi's work, Mahatma Gandhi's work. But we not necessarily rejoice Gandhi's persuasion of hurting yourself. That's our intelligence comes in. Gandhi's selfless. No self-interest of helping people, we rejoice that. But do we really rejoice Gandhi forcing the Indian people to get hurt themselves with the British soldiers? That is another question. We rejoice Akimsa. We return to rejoice self-hurting. But maybe I'm talking too much. I'd rather, rather not create any confusion to you, but I make it very straight. We rejoice Gandhi. Because it's a great work that Gandhi did. So rejoicing is a very profitable spiritual business with no risk, no investment, except a few seconds. And why not we do that? What well, requests you to remain until total enlightenment, requests wise, compassionate guidance. These are okay. But, but dedication is another one. 
most important. I strongly recommend here first two, then, then the third, then fourth, and the seventh. Dedication. Dedication is safeguarding. As I told you earlier, wrong things can change, right things can change. We build a huge positive virtue and we create hatred. The hatred will burn all our virtues. So many of us don't even know this. Because nobody talks about it. Nobody presented it the right way. Because it's too detailed, too complicated. Because it may not be applicable to everybody. Who knows? Whatever the reason is. But even in Judeo-Christian tradition, we have this service. Tremendous, wonderful service you do, we do. And these services are actually based on this. When you're looking at it, when you attend any church, any service, they're based on this. Present, offering, purifying, and the rejoicing part is making yourself, you know, feel great. All of those is really based on this. Whether you look in the east or whether you look in the west, west, you have this done. So this we can do individually. Contemplate. So these are the something which we can do without any difficulty, without any problem in our own little corner, in our little bedroom, in our little living room, even in our little bathroom, wherever, whatever, whenever you want to do it. And certainly do it in the place of worship. Whether it's a church or temple or synagogue or wherever it is. Center or whatever. Definitely do it. So I, when I look at this title, and there's so much simple, easy way for us to do by ourselves. When we say where we begin the spiritual practice, and this is, here you are. This is the Tibetan Buddhist spiritual gift to you. And you can use this wherever, whatever, in connection with whatsoever it may be. Any tradition, any object of worship, any subject of worship, anywhere you can do this. The dedication I didn't talk much. I should do that. You know what does the dedication do? It will give you the result. Because you are dedicated for it. Once you're dedicated, sort of, sort of you're locked in. It is a karmic system. Don't ask me why. I can't explain, but it'll take two months. So it's a karmic system. It is a karmic contact, which really says when you're dedicated for something, no matter how long, whatever it may take, and it will not disappear until it materialized. That is a karmic contact. Without knowing, we all have that. Just like credit cards. When we get a credit card, without knowing, we sign the piece of paper, send it back, you say, that's the usual, and sign it, at least I do. That's the usual, and sign it back, and so you're bound in the contact. So the karmic contact is, we all have it, the moment we are born. Karmic contact is, no matter whether you're a Judeo-Christian background, or Hindu-Buddhist background, or atheist, or whatever it may be, we all do carry that karmic contact. According to the karmic contact, whatever you did, something, and when you dedicate it, 
until it results giving, no matter what extreme it may go through, it will not waste it. So this is safeguard. Otherwise, hatred burns all the virtues. Purification burns all non-virtuous. It is equal virtue and non-virtue. Almost. We always like to see the virtue wins. Yes. But, but in its own level, it is equal. The virtues have a big weapon called purification. Non-virtues have a big weapon called hatred. And they cancel each other on that basis of the weapon. So the dedication locks that up. It is a protection against the hatred, taking our virtues. So we recommend dedication. Dedicated for whatever you want to, it is your virtue. But don't dedicate it for cheating. Dedicate it for worthwhile, something hard to do, something hard to achieve. Long term goal, good one. So Buddha recommends to be to be dedicated for everybody to be enlightened. So, but that doesn't mean you cannot dedicate that healing of somebody, well-being of somebody, success of something. You can do whatever you want to. It is your money. You can spend wherever you want to spend. But these are the spiritual tools. That's what I like to share with you. Sit down, think, meditate. There's not so much analytical meditation on this. Few analyze. Like a regret. Can I regret? Can I not regret? Do I really feel that I did something wrong? If I do not, so did I do the right thing? If I didn't do right thing, what did I do? So you can analyze that. The analytical meditation will give you a lot of good ideas for you. And finally, when you're convinced you did the wrong thing, then regret. Yes, you are convinced, still you are not willing to regret. Because of our pride, because of our ego. So analytical meditation is active again. So work with this. So why not? Why don't you want regret? I mean, talking to yourself, why don't you want to regret? Because I don't want to admit it. I'm still not convinced that I did wrong. All kinds of answers will come. So work with that again. Make sure it's clearly. I finally convinced the regret. And then you may give up, yes, a little regret. Okay. I accept little regret. What I'm going to do with little regret? Whether you regret or you don't regret, if you regret, why little? Is it right thing or the wrong thing? Yeah, maybe I did right. Maybe I should regret whole. Okay. How much are you willing to go? A little again. So this is how our negative addictions will work against positive deeds. True spiritual practice is within ourselves, in our head. God, Buddha, our witness, help us. Spiritual masters and ministers are the guide. The work is ourselves, within ourselves, to be honest with ourselves. You cannot be not honest with yourself because your mind is absolutely clear to ourselves. There is nothing to hide within ourselves. It is within our own mind. Nobody to cheat. No one to lie. Nobody to be blamed. So do the right. It never lets anyone down. 
And once you are convinced, and then concentrate on it. If you regret, build a strong regret. And then purify. In a one way, spiritual practice is simple. On the other hand, it is complicated. But better do a simple way. Simple. As I told you the other day, we try to make it as short as possible so we have like a couple of lines here. Traditional old Tibet's Tibetan system. These are volumes. I bow down Bodhisattva's mind as a volumes. People spend days of reading that, thinking of this. Months. Now for us, one line. But if this word is not backed up by your mind and your understanding and your mental power, there's no value. If you backed up with your mind, this is a very powerful thing in your own hand. Extremely powerful. The result of the thousand years of meditation by so many great masters are making it short and simple and a very easy way for us. This is a ready-made dinner, but not a TV dinner. It has notations, values, and everything intact. This may be rhetorical, but in Buddha, how do you equate mind, thought, and spirit in our day-to-day living? It's beyond me, sir. Really, to me, when I look at the Buddha, I tell you what I look at. I don't look at the Buddha's image and I don't see that as Buddha. I will see Buddha as a something, some being there, beyond the image. You know, we have Buddha images, right? We fold the hand and all that. But I really see Buddha beyond that. And that Buddha a mind, thought, spiritual, all one. I don't make the separation, distinction. That may be my stupidity. What can I say? One question, we mentioned the lamp and the bulb, the thought and the emotions, could they be simultaneous? Yes. Supposed to be. Because that is extraordinary quality of enlightened beings is simultaneously everywhere. Everything happens. You know, I must tell you one very interesting story. That's about a few, maybe about ten years ago. You know, this Grateful Dead, that's a music group called Grateful Dead people. They're called Grateful Dead, right? and Mickey Lemley and all of those people. And they had a group of Tibetan monks together and uh, had a performance in the St. John's uh, Chapel in New York City. St. John's is huge, right? Chapel. And there's uh, some few people supposed to speak. And they made me to speak. Actually, my good friend, Professor Robert Thurman, told me I should speak, but speak only for two minutes, and supposed to light a candle, and there is going to be 2,000 candles in the, over the audience. No, 5,000 candles with the audience. So I started leading the candle lighting, and uh, then they all supposed to be lighting the candle. And the stage you have to climb up, it's a big stage, like a four, five, six, seven steps you have to climb up. So while I was going, Thurman was shouting from there and grabbed me. So when, I, when he grabbed me, I fell down <laughs> from the steps. So he said, they forgot candles, don't say candles, don't lay the candles. So I'm supposed to be going there to, to lay the candles. So I went up there and I did speak about the extraordinary quality of enlightened beings and uh, simultaneously functioning everything. 
and everywhere. And I did give explanation of saying like the gods everywhere. And because I said at that level and our level, the difference between man and God, or the enlightened being and non-enlightened being is whether we can function everything simultaneously. Body, mind, speech, on frequencies. At that level, they're all in same frequencies, simultaneously everything. We are incapable. That's the difference. So for the, for the, for the mind of enlightened ones, and their mind is, wherever their mind is, their, their body is. Their mind is total knowledge, whatever they know, they're there. So they're everywhere. And I said, that's what it means, the difference between. And then I came down, and there's an African-American gentleman who's sitting right in the front. And uh, they told me he is some big person. I didn't even hear what he is, you know, some big person. Whether it's something to do with you and or something to do to the church. But he came and grabbed me and gave me one big fat kiss on my lip. And he said, you're from Tibet, right? I said, yes, sir. Say, hey, you did a great job of explaining this. And... Uh, and uh, you do better than Southern Baptist ministers with eye turn all the time. And they give me a big fat kiss. And I wasn't sure, is this a compliment or... <laughs> of course it's a compliment, he said. <laughs> so that was a funny experience I had, you know. So it's a huge guy, you know, called me like this. <laughs> <So> <laughs> So just, just remember that I'm sorry I waste your time. Thank you.